There we go. Here we are. All right. So most of this summer, uh, we've been in the book of Acts. Todd started us off there, and Andy was in it last week. So what I'm going to do, if you've been hit or miss throughout the summer due to vacations or whatever is happening this summer, I'm going to recap us to, to get us up to speed. We're in Acts chapter 6 today, but I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. If you've got the Pew Bible in front of you, I believe it's page 909. Page 909 in the Pew Bible. But we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Okay, so the book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. It's the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. It was written to a guy, if you look at the introductions of both Luke and Acts, it's written to a guy named Theophilus, which is kind of an interesting name. We don't know if this is a real person, but it could very well be you. The word Theophilus means friend of God. So it could be written to you as well, or to a real person with that name. I'm not sure. But what it acts does, it serves as a bridge from the Gospels to the Epistles. The Epistles were the letters written to the early church, but it shows a guide for what the church should be like and for what missions should look like. Now, if you're looking at your Bible and it says, it says Acts, it probably before it and after it says the Acts of the Apostles. Okay? But what we really have here is, as Todd and Andy mentioned in past weeks, it really records the Acts of the Holy Spirit, what the Spirit has done. Through these men. Because up until Pentecost, the disciples were scared men in hiding for fear of their lives at the hands of the Romans. They were held up in, in, in a room, just gathering together. Jesus told them right before his ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that these scared men, they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But not until that time. They would do it, in their, they would do it under the Spirit's power. Acts chapter 2, we hear about this power coming. This is, the, this is the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes rushing in like a wind and, and tongues of fire on the, on the heads of the people. Excuse me. So at this time, the Holy Spirit came in and empowered them. You saw Peter instantly being changed from a man who denied Christ and was held up in hiding to boldly proclaiming the word of God in public. But it resulted in 3,000 people getting saved that day. I want to turn your attention to verse 42, chapter 2, verse 42. I want, to sh- I want you to see what the early church did. Acts 2, 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. I think we're pretty good at breaking bread here. We do that a lot. Um, but what you're seeing here is a good model for Christian growth today. Dedicated to the apostles' teaching, that's the word of God. Really, they didn't have what we have today in the New Testament, but they had the word of God from the Old Testament, and they could look at it through the lens of Christ, and it came alive. Okay, The fellowship, as Christians in, in Jerusalem, they were on their own. You had the Jewish society, and as soon as you made a claim for Christ, you were on the, outs- on the outskirts. You needed this fellowship, like Debbie was talking about. Time in the Bible, in this fellowship with other believers, you help sharpen each other into people who are more conformed to the image of Christ. And then prayer. Debbie also mentioned that. Prayer is essential. That's communicating with God. And you can do that. You don't need a priest. You don't need anyone else. Okay? And the Bible says that there's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. He has he is cleared the way for you to approach his, bol- his throne with boldness and confidence. Acts chapter 3. Miracles start happening. 
Peter and James are, are uh, they run into this lame beggar, and the beggar is healed. He was lame for 30 years or 40 years. But it wasn't John and Peter who healed this man. It was the Lord who healed him through men who were yielded to the Holy Spirit. You see this in Acts chapter 4. We're kind of blowing through some stuff. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested, and they're questioned regarding this healing. How did this healing happen? You can see the response there in chapter 10, or in verse 10, uh, 4 verse 10. It says, Let it be known to all of you, the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him that this man is standing before you well. Peter and John were also in hiding. And they're called to the council. They're put on trial right here. And they point the finger right back at the accuser. How do we do it? It's Jesus whom you crucified. That took courage. That did not happen in their own strength. Okay. Verse 11, or verse uh, 12, they come a little bit further. They said, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. There's no other way. The law is not going to do it. If, the, if the, there was another way, Jesus died for nothing. And then verse 13 is an encouragement for me and really convicting it at times too. It says, so they're, they're boldly proclaiming before the council. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Because before Jesus picked up these guys, they were fishermen, Com- common, uneducated. They could probably read. They weren't, they weren't fools. But you and I are in the same boat. We're common. We're not theolo- like college theologians or anything like that. We're common people. But can people see the difference in me? If I'm standing in, in the line at Publix or at Walmart, or I'm sitting at the restaurant table, or if I'm driving down the highway, can people recognize me as having spent time with Jesus? Can they do the same in you? As we spend time in the word, time in prayer, and fellowship with other believers, we're conformed to his image, and people can't help but to see the change in us. Okay, Acts chapter 5. Andy, that was Andy last week. He talked, he talked on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. He said that the Holy Spirit is God himself. He's part of the triune. That's three. That's where the word trinity comes from. Triunity. He's, he is equally God. But he also has chosen to live inside you and me. The eternal, perfect, holy God of all the universe has chosen to live inside you and me. How does that happen? Why me? But you can find that in Scripture. If, you, if you've heard that before, when, when Debbie said, ask Jesus in your heart, this is what she means. The Holy Spirit, that's God himself, comes to live inside of you. If you want to find that in Scripture, it's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. It says, having heard the word of God, you believed, and having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the day of redemption. Okay? You know what a deposit is, right? When you go on vacation and you want to stay at this certain cabin or this certain place on the beach, you put a deposit down to make sure that that place is yours when you get there. That's the same thing that Jesus did with us in the Holy Spirit. That's why he indwells you. He's, he's, he's given you himself as a deposit. What's your inheritance? That's eternal life. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later on today too. But it's a guarantee. Having faith in Christ, you, the Holy Spirit lives inside you, and he, he's the, the promise of what's yet to come. 
Okay, and First Corinthians chapter six also says we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Again, he chose this imperfect person to choose to be his temple. I don't know. I don't understand why he does something like that, but he does. So what we've seen doing, seen happening through the book of Acts so far, chapters one through five, we've seen the Holy Spirit moving and doing amazing things through men who are yielded to him. And what happened was the church grew. 3,000 in one day, and then daily numbers were added to them, the people being saved. And that brings us to Acts chapter 6. So let's go ahead and pray before we get into it. Father, again, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the fellowship of believers that we have here at Bible Fellowship Church and all over the world with those people who have faith in Christ. Thank you for your word that instructs us, guides us, teaches us. Lord, help us to be submissive to your Holy Spirit. Lord, we, we want him to come in and, and be our teacher today. Father, use me, use my words to fall on ears that need to hear them. Help me to get out of the way so your spirit can speak. Father, we love you and thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So, okay, <clears throat> at this time we mentioned the church is growing at an astronomical rate. And when you start putting a bunch of people together, what starts to happen? Conflict, right? In any body of people you have conflict, right? Uh, even in church, you know, Debbie said this is a perfect place. Maybe when the lights are turned off and we're all gone, it's perfect. But you start adding all, the, all these people in here, and we, we probably drag it down a little bit, myself included. <clears throat> we're sinners. That's what we do. We rub each other. We get on each other's nerves. So we're going to see how they dealt with this. Take a look at, at verse 1 and 2 in, in chapter 6. It says, Now in these days, the disciples were increasing in number. I want to clear something up for you. It says disciples. When you think disciples... You might think of the 12 guys who followed Jesus around here. But the disciples here are all people who were, were following the Lord. They've made a decision for Christ. Um, so it could be up to three to 5,000, 6,000. I don't know how many at this time. But disciples were people who were adhering to the teaching. And then it, it, it distinguishes the 12 from there, or the apostles. Okay, so the disciples were increasing in number, and a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that's the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So you've got the church starting in Jerusalem, and it's really all Jewish people. But in this group, they had little subcultures. You had the Hellenists. Those were the, the Jewish people who spoke Greek. But then you had the Hebrews. Those are the ones that spoke Hebrew because they were probably from that area. And the, the Hellenists were saying, well, our widows aren't getting taken care of. They're not receiving bread to take care of their needs. And that causes a problem. Okay, so this sounds like a first century problem, but the same thing happens in church today. You know, it's little subgroups or cliques can can start to develop in churches, and it hinders the fellowship that we have. It hinders the fellowship that we have with each other, and it hinders our fellowship with the Father. So we need to be aware of, of, of these little cliques that can form. James chapter 2 warns us, to, uh, especially along lines of showing favoritism, along socioeconomic lines, but there are other lines that can be drawn. Um, but the point here is, they were talking about their, their widows not getting, being fed. Taking care of widows is a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. Actually, James also says that taking care of widows and orphans is pure and undefiled religion. Preaching the word of God is a good thing, right? All right. But the apostles were kind of at a, junct, uh, at a junction. They needed to make a decision. 
do we stop doing preaching the word of God to make sure these, these people are being fed? They had to make a decision to lay down some really good things to make room for the best thing. And even really good things can become a negative thing when they take the place of a best thing. So how did they solve this problem? Come on down to verse 3. We're going to read 3 through 6. It says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to the prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on him. Okay. The disciples decided to delegate, which is a good management strategy. If you've got a lot of stuff to be done, many hands light, make light work. So they delegated the matters into capable hands. This freed their hands to turn their attention to their gift, which is prayer and the ministry of the word. And this is the best thing for the early church. Because as, you're starting, as they're starting this group in Jerusalem, they needed help. They needed guidance. And they couldn't do it on their own. This whole, this whole Christian movement was not of man. It was of God. But they needed to rely on God for power. So they, they devoted themselves to prayer. The ministry of the word... Again, they had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. So my guess is they're scouring the Old Testament, looking through the Law and the Prophets to see all the things that the Word spoke about Jesus so they could bring those truths to this Jewish population. They're also probably trying to record everything they could remember Jesus saying, doing, teaching, so that it could be preserved for future generations. You know, the further away an event happened, the foggier the details get. But while it's fresh in their mind, I'm sure they're writing everything down. Okay? Uh, but when, when they were doing this, and the other people were taking care of the needs, the church was growing. I'm thinking about, uh, if you think back to Old Testament, when Moses left Egypt, and they were wandering around the desert for 40 years. Okay? It wasn't just a couple thousand people. You're talking about two and a half million people wandering through the desert. And none of these guys had the Holy Spirit living inside them. So I can imagine the kind of conflict that was happening. Okay, your tent is too close to mine. You didn't clean out your jar of manna and it's stinking up my tent. You took my sandals. When are we going to get bread again? Where's the quail? You know, you know, all the conflict that could happen. And they're all bugging Moses about it. Two and a half million people bugging Moses. Could Moses do his job? His job right now was to intercede for the people and teach them the law. But he's handling all, the, all these little issues. Moses' father-in-law comes along and says, Moses, this is wearing you out. You've got people here who can handle this. So divide them up into thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and put good, able, God-fearing men who are not given to bribes, and put them in charge, and let them to decide those matters, and only bring the, the difficult cases to you. They took that off Moses' shoulders. Could you imagine if, if Todd and Andy were running around here doing every little thing around this place? Nothing would get done. They'd be busier than they'd like to, but they'd never get a thing done. We appreciate people being willing to serve. But the apostles didn't just choose anyone for this work. They picked people to be of good repute, full of the Spirit, and wise. Good repute, that means you have a good reputation. A good reputation takes a lifetime to, be, to build, but can be destroyed in an instant. Why do you need to have a good reputation? Well, if you're going to be the face of an organization, 
people will try to find fault with you. And if they can find fault with you, it can ruin the message of the whole organization. Full of the Spirit? One, they need to be aware of the Spirit. That's what Andy was talking about, being full of the Spirit. He said, being aware of his presence. Operating out of the right motives. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5 talks about, don't be drunk on wine, but be full of the Spirit. Speaking to each other in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, and making melody of the Lord in your heart. Okay, the more you fix your affections on Jesus, the more naturally... He's going to flow out of your life. Which you know, Remember what mom always said? Garbage in. Garbage in. Garbage out. That's right. As you're spending more time put, placing your attention on Jesus, the more he's going to flow out of your life. That's being full of the, of the spirit. Um, now, service. Okay? They're chosen to serve, and the same opportunities are, are, are for you as well. We don't, we don't work to get saved. There's no, nothing we could, as we mentioned earlier, there's nothing we could do to merit salvation. Salvation is a gift. It's for by grace that you've been saved, not of works, not of yourself, lest anyone should boast. This is Ephesians chapter 2, but verse 10, 2 verse 10 says that we're his workmanship created to do good works that he prepared in advance for us. Okay? You're saved. You're created for good works. There's an opportunity to serve and give back. So how do you do that? Well, it says we also need to be wise. What does wise mean? Not just older on in years with experience, but God has specifically gifted you for a purpose. He's given you interests and abilities to do certain jobs, and he's expecting you to use those. First Peter chapter 4 said each one of us has received a gift. Each one of us received a gift, First Peter chapter 4, and it's to be used in service to the body. Okay. I don't know what your gift is, but if you want a whole listing of these gifts, you can look at 1 Peter chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12. There are, a lot of them are listed there. There are 4s and 12s. 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. You can find them there. Let me show you how that plays out here and how it helps the body. Okay. You might be a personnel person. Maybe that God's given you with the gift of administration. You know how to deal with people. You know how to deal with numbers. This organization doesn't run without those kind of people. Missions organizations don't run without budget guys. We need that. Maybe you're a teacher, an encourager. Maybe you've got the gift of mercy. Maybe you just like to cook for people. Maybe you like children. Okay, These are all spiritual gifts. There are certain gifts that I don't have, and you're probably glad that I... Don't try to exercise those gifts because it could turn out to be a bad thing. Okay? Like if I tried to get up here and, and join the music team, you guys would go running. It would be a terrible thing. And I'm, I'm mature enough to know that and accept that gift. That's why I sit up front so no one can hear me sing, but I can enjoy all of you guys singing from behind. Um, but service does come with a cost. Service comes with a cost, and that's something you need to know too. Okay, last week, last, uh, the, pre- the week before, I took a group up to work camp. Hey, that cost us. Not just the money, but it, it cost us with sore muscles, cuts, bruises, sweats, sunburn, all that stuff. That, some of that stuff's not fun, but what it did, it resulted in hope for people. It gave, a, gave at least one person a roof, put new paint on the walls so people who are living in, in transition could have better hope. Here, if you want to work in the nursery... It's going to cost you a little bit, a little bit of time. You'll still get to watch the, the message on the TV in there. Hello, people in the nursery who are watching. 
You're not forgotten. Okay, it's going to cost you, though. You might get spit up on. You're going to have to change a dirty diaper or two. But what that does is it frees Chris and Dana up to go minister to classrooms full of children and possibly share the gospel with a child who makes a decision here that has eternal consequences, generational consequences, good consequences. Okay, Working in the kitchen on Wednesday, it's going to take time, but it helps families come together on a really busy night. If you've got kids school age, you know the middle of the week's nuts, and trying to get any time with your kids, this is... One thing, one less thing you have to do. One less meal you have to prepare. Jail ministry. I'm going to brag on Bobby Graham because she's not here. It costs her time. And she can't do it by herself. So if you want to help out with that, she'd be more than willing to take you under her wing. It's going to cost time, but she brings freedom to, to captives. Literal captives. She brings them freedom. If you've been sitting in here for, for years soaking it up, it's time to start pouring it out. Use a gift of teaching. It doesn't have to be a classroom or in front of a congregation. But with a small group, two or three men or women that you can pull alongside you to, to do this thing. I'm, I'm kind of rambling on some of these, but maybe you've been blessed financially. God's given you those resources for his purposes. Okay? If you've got the resources, give. Do it anonymously. Do it prayerfully. And then just watch and see what God does. And maybe you're like, well, none of those gifts apply to me. One thing that we can all do is we can all pray. I'm going to ask you to pray at the house. Pray. Pray behind the wheel of the car, specifically with your eyes open. But then, there's, there's opportunities for you to, to pray here corporately as well. Okay, you remember the Abide 21 that we did, Pursuit, this last year? There was a group of people who said, we want to keep meeting. So every Thursday, they still meet here at 6.30 over there in the uh, fellowship hall. Come join them. Just show up and pray. Sunday mornings, 8.30 a.m., in the conference room right behind me. People are praying for this service right now, for the classrooms that are going on. They're the engine that drives this church. Join Andy on Wednesday night. There's other needs that are mentioned within this body that need prayer. So join and pray. You can do that. Maybe you don't know what your gift is. You're not sure exactly how it's going to play out. The best thing you do to find out what your gift is is to get involved. Start doing something. What's going to happen, I'd start with your interest, and then what's going to happen is someone's going to tell you, hey, man, that's your gift. You're really blessed at that. Some people will also tell you, maybe you should try serving somewhere else. And that's okay. That's okay. Use, use the best gift you have wherever you can because God's given you that gift to be used in service with the body, so do it. Um, he, Andy asked last week, he wrapped up with three questions. He says, are you aware of the Spirit's presence? If you are, you should start to say, how can I serve? Are you relying on his power? I don't want to get up here and, and talk this morning, not on my own power, because I have nothing to give. The last question he asks, he says, if, you, if you're not aware of his presence, if you're not relying on his power, why not? And we'll talk about where that could be coming. But I want you to see the results of what happens when people served in the early church. Look at verse 7 down there, chapter 6, verse 7. Says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. People weren't just getting added to the fellowship, it was being multiplied. That's significantly greater than just adding a couple people here or there. You're talking about multiplication. Even getting to the priest coming obedient to the faith, which is a cool thing when you think about. It, it seems like a little a little subnote there in the text. The priests are coming, becoming obedient to the faith. If you think about this, 
they knew who Jesus was as he was doing his ministry. They were fully aware of the disruption that was happening. They knew that he, he said that he was going to die. Furthermore, they knew that he said he was going to rise again from the dead. There were priests inside the temple when he was crucified. They saw the curtain get torn from top to bottom. They knew that Jesus died at the time of the evening sacrifice on Passover. They realized, they took a look at the Old Testament, they realized that Jesus is the Messiah. If you take an honest look at the Old Testament, you can't help but to come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. They realized, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed because he died at just the right time on Passover to cover the sins of all. Pretty amazing thing. So now here in the book of Acts, chapter 6 and chapter 7, it all shifts to Stephen. Our focus is going on Stephen. And he was, he, Stephen was the guy who was chosen to give out bread. I want you to see something here in verse 8. He says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. It wasn't really a great thing to give out bread to people. But he made himself available. He got involved in service. And then God used him to do other things as well. Signs and wonders. We don't know what those are. They're not listed here. But apparently it was pretty impressive. You know the old saying, no good deed goes unpunished. No good deed goes unpunished. That's not really something you need to live by, but you need to know that it happens. Stephen's service did come with a cost, too. And I want you to see where where this goes. We're going to take a look at verse 9 and 10. It says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those from Sicily and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They started disrupting what he was doing. You know, obviously giving out bread, and whatever these signs and wonders were, they were disrupting that too. Getting in his way, keeping him from doing what he needed to do. Then they tried to argue with his message, but they couldn't take it. They couldn't, they couldn't gain any ground that way. So they do what people still do today. You know what happens today when someone can't stand a, a politician's message? What do they go after? They go after his character or her character. Look at the political ads you see on TV today. You may not know what the candidate stands for, but you can tell me everything negative that the other guy's done. Okay? Same thing happens today. But this is exactly what they do with Stephen. Paul tells us in, in 1 Timothy 4, he says, to watch your life and doctrine carefully. Watch your life and doctrine carefully. Watch the way you live. Because if they can find fault with the way that you're living, they can smear you all over the place. And watch your doctrine. They're going to look for some, some place you slip up. They're going to find something to attack your message. Because if you do this, First Timothy 4.16, it says, Persist in this to save yourself and your listeners. If you're, if you're watching your life and doctrine, it's going to save you from trouble, and it's going to save the people coming behind you from slipping into false teaching. Okay, Let's see how bad this disruption gets for Stephen. We're going to look at the rest of this chapter real quick says, then secretly, then secretly they instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place 
and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of a face of an angel. Look what they do. Verse 11, it says, they accused him of, they, we heard him speak blasphemous words. When you see blasphemy, that's a pretty serious charge. That's maligning God and his character, or dragging God down to your level, or elevating yourself up to God's level. That's blasphemy. That had a serious consequence that followed. You know what the consequence was? Death. Death. It wasn't just a, a quick hanging or execution. It was a stoning. People circle up around you and chuck rocks at you until you die. Or they bury you up to your waist and then throw rocks at you so you couldn't even escape if you wanted to. So Stephen knew where this was going right from the get-go. As soon as he heard the word blasphemy, that was it. He knew. Okay? But it probably wasn't just one man who wanted him dead. I'm sure it was just a couple, but they couldn't get it to happen. So what did they do? Look at verse 12. They stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and they, they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. You've got a mob mentality going after this guy. This guy's causing problems in our area, and we're going to solve it by the only way we know how is by getting rid of him. We can't dispute his actions. We can't dispute his message. So we're going to get rid of him. This is probably starting to look pretty familiar to Stephen, especially come verse 13. Then they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. False witnesses. This is the same thing that happened to Jesus, right? Did Jesus do anything wrong? No. Was Stephen doing anything wrong? Nothing that deserved death. But they brought in false witnesses. So it's the same game starting to get played. He knew exactly where this thing was headed. But verse 14 is the part that kind of makes me laugh. This is when their plot starts to defy logic. Check out verse 14. It says, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They're worried about Jesus. According to them, Jesus was a dead guy, a demon-possessed liar whose body was stolen. He was dead, but they're worried about him? They knew the body wasn't gone. The best thing they could do if they wanted to crush the early church was produce a body. Produce a body, and this whole Christian thing goes away, but they couldn't do it because they knew the truth. They knew the lie that was circulated around the guards, that they paid him off to say that his body was stolen. They knew it especially these priests who came to faith, they knew it too. Okay? They weren't scared of, of Jesus, of some dead guy. But we should be scared. We should be scared if Jesus is just a dead guy. If he was just a moral man, or if he was just a good teacher, we should be scared. And I'm going to show you this. If you've got your Bibles and Acts, flip over a couple pages to the right. You have to skip Romans and go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus is just a dead guy and he's still dead, we're in trouble. First Corinthians 15. I'm going to look at verse 17. 1 Corinthians 15 and 17. It says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's not good. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
That word perished is not a good word either. If you're still in your sins, you're still separated from God. If you perished, that means you're burning in the lake of fire if Jesus is a dead guy. Verse 19 says, If in Christ we have hope for this life only, we're to be of all men most pitied. If, our, if we're just saying that we've got faith in Christ and that's going to save us, and he's just a dead guy, we should be pitied more than everyone else because we've been duped. We're the suckers. But, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 22, for as in Adam all will die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord he's not a dead guy. They're not scared of a dead man. They're scared of the living God. They, by now, they pretty much know what they've done. I don't think they're beyond hope either. I don't think these Jews are beyond hope at this point. The offer's on the table. It's still available. But something's keeping them. Something's keeping them from making that decision. And the same thing that keeps them from making that decision keeps us from making the decision today too. It's pride. If they were to follow Jesus, they'd have to give up their position. They'd have to give up their authority. And what they've based their entire life on, they'd have to say, I was wrong. I don't like admitting I'm wrong. I'm getting better at admitting it faster, but I still don't like it. But pride keeps, keeps us from doing what we need to be doing. So what about you? Is Jesus just some dead guy? Is he just some moral man? Is he just a good teacher? You might even call him a prophet. Or is he, he the perfect, only begotten son of God who lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, my sins, the sins of the entire world, was buried, was raised again on the third day, and now lives forever at the right hand of God, ever interceding for you and me? Who is he? That's the thing that we've got to wrestle with. Now, maybe you're in the former category. You're the one, he's just, he's, he died, so what? He, just like everyone else, there's a bunch of different ways you can get there. You know, a bunch of different ways you can get to heaven. And maybe you're thinking this morning, maybe there's something to this Jesus thing. Maybe there's something about this Holy Spirit that's changing these scared men into brave people. If that's you, I'm going to encourage you. Kind of like Debbie said this morning, in the quietness of your own heart, there's no magic words, no specific prayer that's going to save you. It's faith. It's by grace that you're saved through faith in Christ. That's it. Nothing you can do. But this is where you need to go in your own heart. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that my sins separate me from you, and I don't like it. I want to be close to you. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose again. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. The best I know how, I'm placing my trust in you for the payment of my sin, for the salvation of my soul. Thank you. No magic words. It's his grace that's done it. Trust in Christ. If that was you, let me tell you what just happened. If that was your decision that you made right here, right now, something just happened. Without leaving your seat, John chapter 5, verse 24 says, you passed from death to life. That's pretty cool. All of us are born once with the destiny of hell. It says, um, Hebrews 9, 27, 
man is uh, destined to die once and then comes the judgment. We're all going to die. We're all faced with that same reality. But it's what you do with Christ that makes a difference. You're born twice, you die once. Does that make sense? Born once, you die twice, physical death and eternal death. You're born twice, you die just physical death, but you live forever. If that was you, and you've also been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Like I mentioned out of Ephesians chapter 1, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Your eternal life started right here, right now, in your seat, and it lasts forever. It cannot leave you. It cannot be taken from you. There's nothing that you can do that can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. No one can snatch you out of his hand. It, you are secure. So if that was you, what I would encourage you to do is at the end of the service, come down front and, and talk with somebody. Talk to someone right next to you. You don't have to get up and come down here. But if you want to know more, I'd invite some of the, the men or women who feel confident, confident in talking to someone about Jesus, come down here and talk to anyone who's struggling with this or maybe made that decision. Maybe they have some more questions. I'm going to encourage you to ask. Don't leave here without knowing for sure. <clears throat> But finally, before I leave, I want you to see something in verse 15. All that were staring at him saw that Stephen's face was like an angel. He wasn't freaking out. He knew he had a death sentence coming. He wasn't freaking out. But his eyes were fixed on the author and perfecter of his faith, who went through the same trial that he did and was now going to be condemned to die. He knew that Jesus went this road before him, and he's gone the road before you too. He was looking forward to a better kingdom. I know what's on the other side is greater than what I'm dealing with now, and I'm willing to let this one go so I can go there. He was willing to serve. Stephen was willing to serve. He was just serving bread at first, but God used him through the power of the Holy Spirit to do signs and wonders. And he leaves us with a testimony of courage and confidence under fire. And that's about where I want to leave you for this week. But you've got homework. Okay, we, we went through chapter 6, verse by verse. Your homework is chapter 7. Not just read it. I don't want you to just read it. Yeah. This is your homework. I'm not sure if Todd's doing this next week. If he is, you're going to be a step ahead of him. You're going to know where he's going anyway. So I want you to open your Bible to chapter 7 sometime this week. What you read in chapter 7, mine, mine has a little subheading up there. It says Stephen's speech. It's a court transcript of Stephen's trial before this council. What I want you to do is I want you to read it out loud at your house. Read it out loud like it's a script. Intone your voice. Pretend like it's you actually giving this testimony and see what happens when you don't read the word of God and the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside you interacts with your spirit. You might read in a different way. Kind of a neat thing. But you'd see courage of this man here making this stance before this trial. I'd encourage you to do that this week. We're going to go ahead and close in prayer. I love you guys. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the early church and and brave men like Stephen who demonstrated what a life of service is like, being filled by the Spirit, willing to serve even at great cost. Lord, help us to leave our comfort zone, to go out on on the deep waters. I can't remember what that song said. Uh, Lord, let your Spirit lead me. Where did he say? Well, how was it said? It said, my trust, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders, upon the deep waters. Lead us there. 
God, we have confidence in you that you can support us through whatever you're going to take us through. And it's not without purpose. You've got a plan in the end. So, Lord, continue to conform us to your image. Use your word, prayer, and this fellowship of believers to do it. We thank you for the great work that you started in us, and we pray that you would complete it. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.